Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is George L. Contreras, Professor of Law at the University of Utah College of Law. We will discuss his book, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA, which is published by Algonquin Books. So welcome back to the show, George. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. And I'm really glad that you suggested we have a conversation about this this book, which is a really incredible story about one of the most important cases in United States patent law. And I'll say as someone who's taught the case many times, I learned a lot about the background and what happened and why really it was so significant in the kind of landscape of United States patent law. So first off, thanks for writing it. And it was really a fun read uh, as well. Thank you. No, it, it was it was a pleasure, an amazing process to write it. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, so for listeners who haven't had the, the, for, the good fortune to read the book yet themselves, um, you know, your book tells the story of the Supreme Court case, Association for Molecular Pathology v. Myriad Genetics. It's kind of a mouthful already, and it gives a sense of kind of the scientific complexity of the case we're talking about. Uh, can, can you briefly explain what the case was about and, and why it was so important? Yeah, absolutely. So the case was interesting and important on a number of different levels. And that's really what interested me so much in it and caused me to write a book about it, right? So it's about patent law and it's about genetics. Um, and at a very high level, um, we all have 20,000 or so genes in, in our bodies that do all sorts of things within our cells, uh, some of which help suppress tumors and prevent us from getting cancer. And we've known for, you know, a hundred years that there's some hereditary link with some cancers, especially breast and ovarian cancer. We've known that since the 19th century. And it wasn't until around the 1980s that scientists had developed technology that could actually identify individual genes in our genomes that did certain functions. And so something really important happened in 1990, which is a scientist at Berkeley named Mary Claire King identified uh, a gene, or she thought she had identified uh, the location, the rough location of a gene that was strongly related to breast cancer. And she called it the BRCA gene. And at that time, you could sort of using some epidemiology and detective work, figure out where in the general neighborhood of the genome a gene was, but you didn't know the actual sequence. That was harder to find. And so her announcement in 1990 triggered this worldwide race to find this gene that was related to breast cancer. And there were at least a dozen academic scientific groups around the world who were racing to find this gene. And to make a long story short, in 1994, uh, there was a winner in this race. And this winner, for the first time, was not a university lab or a government research center, but a company. 
um, a company that had spun out from the University of Utah uh, specifically to find this BRCA gene. And so they found it. And the moment they found it, they applied for a patent on it. And the patent office in the United States granted that patent a few years later. And this had been going on. Other genes had been discovered uh, for much less prevalent diseases than breast cancer, and they had all been patented. And so this is kind of where the story begins. This company gets a patent on the BRCA genes, and there turn out to be two of them, BRCA1 and 2. And unlike other universities that had found genes for things like cystic fibrosis and other rarer diseases, Myriad decided it would use its patent to monopolize the market for breast cancer testing or for genetic breast cancer testing. And they did that. They shut down academic labs around the country who were performing these tests. And by about 2000, they were the only game in town. And the only problem with that is that they also, because they had a monopoly, they could charge a lot for the test. And for a test that, you know, at the time probably cost $200 to run, they were charging, you know, $3,000, which um, many women couldn't afford. Many insurance policies didn't cover it. Medicaid didn't cover it. And so that left a lot of women who had a family history of breast cancer unable to get tested, unable to know whether they should get prophylactic surgery, right, prophylactic mastectomy or uh, oophorectomy, removal of the uh, the ovaries in the uterus, um, which could prevent their cancer. Um, they couldn't let their, their children know whether they had uh, this uh, genetic defect that might lead them to get breast cancer. So this was viewed as kind of a big problem out there in the public health and genetics field. Nevertheless, the patents were there. And it wasn't until 2005 that this whole situation came to the attention of people who were not in the medical field, not in the patent world at all, but people at the ACLU, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, which, um, you know, had for the first time hired a science director and decided that it would spend some effort looking at civil rights issues that related to science. And it took them a number of years, but by 2009, they brought this case to challenge these particular patents. Mm -hmm. So hold up here. What does it mean to own a patent on DNA? And why was the patent office issuing patents like this in the first place? Yeah, that's a really good question. And in hindsight, we look back at this and say, what? You know, what, what are you talking about? But it, it became a very normalized practice. And so the way to think about this is that, you know, when the patent office was created in 1790, um, their genetics didn't exist, right? There were basically throughout even most of the 20th century, there were three areas of patents uh, that you could get, mechanical patents, electrical patents, or chemical patents, Right. Um, and so biology and genetics were this branch of chemistry and the uh, patent examiners and patent lawyers and courts all looked at these patents as types of new chemical compounds. And you can patent a new chemical compound. So you create a new material, rayon or polyester, you know, so some of these things from the mid 20th century. And if you invent rayon, 
and you get a patent on that material, it's called a composition of matter patent, then anything that is made of rayon requires your permission as the owner of the patent. So whether it's parachutes or women's stockings or furniture coverings or tires, right? Everyone needs your permission because you invented that substance. So there's an exception to this rule, which is what's called the product of nature rule. You can't just go out into the forest, right? Discover a new mushroom and say, I'm the first one to find this new mushroom. So I'm going to patent it and then get the right um, to be the exclusive uh, provider of anything relating to the mushroom. Now, if you find that new mushroom and figure out this, you know, you mush up the mushroom and rub it on your burns and it heals burns very quickly, you could get a patent on that, on healing burns using the mushroom paste, but not the mushroom itself. Okay, so these are the two poles here. You invent rayon or you find the mushroom. And where do genes fall on that spectrum, right? And this was kind of a tricky question that got resolved back in the 1980s um, when, you know, pretty good patent lawyers were able to convince the patent office that, look, our researchers found this new gene, say the gene for cystic fibrosis, CFTR. What they're patenting is not the gene inside of the cell in a human body, right? Inside of the cell, every gene, we have these very long segments of DNA called chromosomes. They've got millions of DNA base pairs on each of them. And each, each chromosome has thousands of genes on it. You, you couldn't patent that. But if you find the CFTR gene, pluck it out of the chromosome, so it's now freestanding, right? They call it isolated and purified. Now you've got something that doesn't exist in nature, right? It's not just that mushroom that you found. It's a new thing. You have to go to the laboratory to break that gene out of the chromosome and have it in isolated form. And they claim that that was a new composition of matter because it doesn't exist in nature. And if you're a chemist, you know, that that's convincing, right? You've got this molecule it, at the ends, right? The two ends of the gene, it's not attached to these other molecules. It's sort of floating out uh, in the laboratory. And so it's a new composition of matter. And the patent office started to allow these patents on human genes. And they did this in a big way. By 2005, about 20% of all known human genes were covered by some kind of patent. So I, I guess I feel like I'm, I can't be alone. And, and based on your book, I'm clearly not alone because I feel like a lot of people you talk about in the book had the same reaction that this seems kind of bananas to me. I mean, the first thing that occurred to me while I was reading about it was like, this entire theory sounds like saying, oh, I read a book, but I took a sentence out of the book and said, now the sentence is something different and new. And so I'm going to own the sentence. Like, what am I missing? You know, you're absolutely right. So without, without exception, every geneticist and every scientist who like has heard this story thinks this is ridiculous. How, how is this possible? Um, but, but to a patent lawyer, right, it's absolutely reasonable, right? It's a new thing. Did it exist before? No. Um, and you know, it, it, it's just a matter of your perspective on the world, which is weird. So, I mean, as you describe in the book, this was really normal at the time that Myriad took out its patent on the BR patents on the BRCA genes, 
Why Myriad? Why BRCA? I mean, there were lots of other companies with lots of other similar kinds of patents out there. What happened? Why did this all end up involving this specific company and this specific patent? Yeah, now that, that's a really good question. So the ACLU, in 2005, when the ACLU, who had never brought a patent case before, by the way, and had no patent lawyers on their staff, um, when they figured out that this was happening, you know, they're not they're not policy advocates and whatnot. They're not just going to write an article saying gene patenting is bad, which had happened, right? This had been happening for many years with no effect. They knew what they had to do was bring a lawsuit. And that's what the ACLU does, right? They bring cause litigation and they go to court um, to overturn laws that they find problematic in some way. And so when you go to court, you need a defendant, right? And sure, lots of companies and uh, universities and spin outs had gotten patents on genes. And, you know, it was actually a process. They did have to figure out which company, which patents should we go after. And there were other good candidates. In fact, you know, Myriad at least was making its test available. The price was high, but many women were getting the Myriad test. And, and you know, to their credit, many lives were being saved. Um, there were other companies uh, that had patents on other genes for more rare diseases that you know, weren't providing testing at all, had gone out of business. The patents were just sitting in limbo in a bankruptcy court for years. Um, and, you know, you have a very sympathetic case uh, with uh, genes um, relating to a, a cardiac arrhythmia uh, a pediatric cardiac arrhythmia called long QT syndrome that is easily prevented by the administration of beta blocker drugs. If, but you know, you're not going to administer beta blockers to every child, every infant, if they've got this genetic mutation, though you should, and that will save their life. But this company was locked up in a bankruptcy proceeding for years and um, the bankruptcy trustee would not let anybody, um, you know, uh, utilize the patents because he needed to auction them off at the highest value. And so it was a really tragic situation. Uh, but in looking at the grand scope of cause litigation, right, one of the things the ACLU knew or at least came to the realization of was that this has to be a case that's going to resonate with the public, um, with with members of juries, with judges and you know, a rare disease like long QT syndrome, as, as tragic as it is for a few families, um, no one's ever really heard of it, right? Most people have never heard of it. And so they needed a disease like breast cancer um, that is so pervasive that uh, everyone will have heard of it and it could generate a lot of public support, which it did. This, this They were absolutely right on that point. Mm. So one of the things that struck me as really especially interesting and um, unusual, maybe unusual, I don't know, about the story you tell in in the book is that the ACLU and the people kind of around the ACLU, uh, ACLU really kind of driving this litigation forward weren't people who were really involved with patent law or genetics at all in, in any way. It, it just felt so incredibly contingent that they developed an interest in this particular area and drove forward this this case. Who are those people? Why did that happen? And what, if anything, did that kind of say to you 
about the nature of of this kind of litigation and policymaking uh, around around patents in the Supreme Court. Yeah, so so they're really I mean a lot of people played a really important role in this case and it was purely serendipitous in a lot of ways that this case was even brought. You know, it they brought it in 2009, like more than a decade after the patents uh, were, were issued, right? The first patent started in 1997. Um, so it took a really long time for this to happen. But but the characters really were important. So Chris Hansen was the main litigator at ACLU, who was a very senior guy there. He had been at the ACLU for 30 years or so at the time. He had been involved in a lot of really high-profile cases, the uh, Brown versus Board, which had many, many, after the initial case in the 50s, it, it dragged on for a long time as uh, schools didn't want to desegregate. Um, so there was a lot of Brown versus Board litigation, but some uh, really landmark litigation in the field of uh, mental health facilities, the um, the online uh, the Communications Decency Act, uh, Reno versus ACLU, um, he was involved in, which did go to the Supreme Court. So he was he was this superstar litigator who had this awesome position at the ACLU where there are a handful of these people who just get paid to look around and bring lawsuits and where justice needs to be done. Um, sort of like a Lone Ranger uh, type of character. Um, but he was not a scientist, knew nothing about science, knew nothing about patents. Um, but he had very good litigation instincts. And then in... So the lead up to this is in 2001, obviously, the 9-11 attacks changed a lot in America. Um, and the U.S. government's uh, reaction to the 9-11 attacks was was heavy handed in many ways. There were a lot of civil rights abuses uh, that, that came out of it. The USA Patriot Act was very controversial. The prisoners at Guantanamo, you name it, there, there were a, a half a dozen major civil rights issues that the ACLU was looking at and became very active. And, and so they raised a lot of money, right? The ACLU, which, you know, had kind of dwindled a little bit since the 60s and the civil rights movement really um, exploded again after 9-11 and it enabled them to double the size of their staff, hire a lot of people. And Anthony Romero, who was the executive director of the ACLU, was actually quite prescient in thinking, you know, we – We've got 100 lawyers, but we don't have any scientists. We don't have anybody to tell us like how science might affect some of these civil rights issues. And, you know, there were a lot of issues already at that time around DNA fingerprinting and the FBI and its giant database of DNA and all of these things. So they went out and they recruited and hired a science advisor. And the person they hired was kind of surprising, right? She was she didn't have a PhD as she had a master's degree in like environmental policy from Berkeley has been working at a, um, a nonprofit that uh, did things around genetic policy. And her name was Tanya Simoncelli and uh, she flew out. They loved her at the ACLU and they hired her in 2003. And she wasn't a lawyer, uh, but she, you know, knew about legal issues and her job was to get the ACLU lawyers interested and help figure out litigation strategies for this. And so she, you know, in sort of the opening scene, which which is, is like well-publicized scene, she walks into Hansen's office asking about different issues and, um, you know, mentions gene patenting. And, you know, he 
being a hotshot litigator, but knowing nothing about patents, says, no, what are you talking about? That can't exist. That that can't be happening. And she says, no, no, Chris, it's really happening. And he says, no, 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 no. You've got to be, you, you're getting it wrong. And, you know, the long story, the short story is she does, she's right, of course, and she persuades him that this is happening. Um, and uh, they decide they have to bring some litigation. And so the third really important person, uh, well, there are two other really important people they bring on, one of whom is a patent expert, right? They they can't do this without someone who knows something about patents. And the problem is that all of the law firms in the U.S. Uh, who have some sort of biotech patent practice, like they fight about gene patents, right? Amgen and Genetics Institute are having a huge litigation over patents on genetic material. But those fights were always like, okay, my patent is better than yours. Your patent is obvious. Your patent's invalid. No one ever thought to challenge the very idea of patenting human genes. So no law firm would would help them out, which is unusual, right? Law firms usually line up to uh, to take ACLU cases. Not here. Um, but there was a guy named Dan Ravisher who had been at a big New York law firm and left to found a form a foundation um, that was devoted to sort of culling out patents that were having a problem. And he was a young guy and achieved like an amazing victory against a patent on Lipitor. Um, this Pfizer drug, which was the best-selling blockbuster drug of the time, um, and got him some real attention in the patent world. And so he joined their little team. Um, and then the last piece of this, uh, which I'll quickly, is um, the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. Right, The ACLU, they're devoted to a lot of issues, free speech and uh, you know anti-discrimination. Patent law was not one of their areas of, of focus. Um, and they had a big years-long debate about this inside of the ACL. Can they even bring this case? And choosing breast cancer as the disease at the target that they'd go after made this not only um, a case about patents, but a case about women's rights. And so, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the 70s founded the Women's Rights Project, the ACLU. And um, a young lawyer named Sandra Park was assigned to the team and, uh, you know, she she really was instrumental in helping uh, with this case, too. So a lot of serendipity, uh, but really amazing people behind this. What was the reaction from Myriad, other companies who are sort of in the genetics industry and the, the patent office as well when when this case was initially filed on the ACLU started pursuing it. I mean, from your book, it it seems like they were kind of caught a little flat footed. They they couldn't believe it, right? Remember, by two thousand nine, the patent office had been granting these patents for like twenty five years. This was settled law, right? This was not you know something brand new. Um, literally for an entire generation of patent lawyers, um, you know, they had been issuing these patents. So the patent office was dumbfounded. They said, you know, this is perfectly legal. Um, and even Mar- Myriad, you know, to their credit, and I, I, I did interview and speak with a lot of people at Myriad itself, they were, they were following the law, right? They weren't doing anything unusual, anything particularly edgy, um, this was well-established practice. And, you know, lots of companies had patents on these genes. I mean, Myriad's um, reaction, uh, the reaction of some people was, 
why are they picking on us? Like, what did we do? You know, we, our test is actually saving lives. Um, and, you know, to some degree, they, they had a point there. They, they felt somewhat wronged uh, by this. The patent bar was was uh, beside itself, right? And there's some very active patent bloggers who who were uh, extremely agitated and went on the warpath. Basically, called for the ACLU team to be disbarred. It's just such a frivolous case, just a PR stunt. Um, a lot of this went on at the beginning and uh, through the very end. Yeah, I mean, it really seemed like, in a lot of ways, the kind of people on Myriad's side, both representing Myriad and sort of lining up behind them in a kind of policy sense, were really out of their element trying to fight this against the ACLU. I mean, it seemed like they were trying to fight it on kind of technical patent grounds, and the ACLU was pursuing it more as like a political strategy in litigation. Yeah, this this was truly a unique patent case. I mean, <laughs> patent cases... You know, as as you know, as a teacher, they're, they're usually pretty boring. Um, you know, the important cases involve things like automotive braking systems and, you know, <laughs> things that really don't stir the passions. Um, but and and, you know, Myriad and it, it, it hired one of the best law firms in the country, Jones Day, uh, to represent it. But but again, this sort of cause litigation is fought in a very different way than typical patent litigation where it's, you know, Pfizer versus Amgen, right? Two giant companies marshalling the technical arguments. The ACLU had news coverage and media all lined up. They made videos, you know, they posted stuff on YouTube. Um, it, and it, it was effective. Well, so George, when the case got fought out before the Supreme Court, what ended up happening? And what, if anything, were the long-term kind of policy consequences of, of, of the court's decision in Myriad? Yeah, so, so we'll give some spoilers here, um, you know, which is okay because the case is public, uh, public information. Um, you know, one element of the case that, that I haven't talked about yet is, is the Obama administration's involvement in the case. And uh, early on, the uh, Solicitor General of the United States got involved in laying out a position in this case, which, again, quite surprisingly and unusually, was not defending the government agency that issued the patents, right? The, uh, the Solicitor General um, issued opinions and argued for a position that tried to achieve some kind of compromise between Myriad and the Patent Office on one hand and the ACLU on the other hand. Um, and that compromise position basically invalidated patents that uh, covered the DNA sequence of our genes, the way they exist in the cells, even if they're taken out of the cells. Um, but it allowed patents if you just take what are called the coding regions of the gene and splice them together in the laboratory to make something new that doesn't exist in the human cell. And many people, many scientists view this as an artificial distinction, which I'm happy to talk more about. Uh, and they are right about that. But it's sort of Justice Thomas, who wrote the opinion for a unanimous Supreme Court, basically adopted the Solicitor General's uh, position wholesale. Um, and invalidated uh, Myriad's patents, except 
the ones that related to this constructed uh, cDNA uh, construct, which which Myriad didn't use. It's actually not useful in the diagnostics business at all. Um, so it was kind of a pyrrhic victory uh, for Myriad. Uh, but um, but the implications of the case have been important, right? Even though the ACLU targeted this one company and one set of patents, you know, the Supreme Court's decision affected all patents that covered human genes, right? Thousands of them. So in one fell swoop, they all basically became invalid, uh, which was huge, right? So there were immediate effects in, in the BRCA testing market. The price dropped, you know, by half at least uh, immediately today, you know, for your 99 or $125 that you pay to 23andMe, you can get tested for these particular mutations, right? So the price in that area has fallen dramatically. I mean, it's, it's fallen across the board in other uh, areas also. Um, but the case has had important ramifications outside of even human genetic diagnostics. And I, the one that hits home the closest today is COVID-19. Um you know, we're not talking humans here, we're talking about a virus, right? But it also has a genetic sequence. And in previous viral outbreaks, SARS and MERS and H5N1, in all of those pre-2013 outbreaks, some group that was the first to discover or the first to sequence the viral RNA sequence was claiming patents or trying to get patents on this, which was caused a lot of problems in the research community as Groups were scrambling to try to, uh, you know, figure out what was going on with the virus and create a cure, see what was effective. Um, that didn't happen with COVID-19, right? The SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, it was sequenced. And within a week of that sequencing, the sequence was released to public databases. And, you know, think what you want about the vaccines and the charges and whatnot, there are lots of issues around the COVID-19 vaccines. But one thing that was not an issue was patents preventing researchers around the world from jumping on this really rapidly to get a cure and get vaccines together. So, so I think that's a really important um, outcome of, of this case. So changing gears just a little bit for a moment, what, what piqued your interest in this, in this particular case and what was the process of collecting the material for this this book like? Like, what did you do in preparation for writing the book? What was the experience of of researching and and putting the book together like for you? Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was uh, quite a process and quite new to me, <laughs> also, but. You know, the case, you know, obviously I study patent law and I, I had known about Myriad's patents long before the case was ever brought and had followed the case closely, you know, stage by stage. And like, the more the more time went by, like the more weird oddball things happened in this case that don't happen in other patent cases, right? And the Solicitor General of the United States actually showed up at the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, right, the Patent Appeals Court, to argue personally. And that, that had never happened before. Um, there was a crazy motion to disqualify the chief judge of the Federal Circuit because of stuff he said at a conference. That had not happened before. All of these wild things were happening in the case as it moved along. And the Supreme Court 
only patent case that I'm aware of ever where there were demonstrators on the steps of the Supreme Court, you know, people chanting, news coverage, like even really important patent cases, that doesn't happen. Um, and to me, it seemed like this, there was a moment here. People, ordinary people cared about this patent case, which was odd and unusual. And so it got me thinking about it and thinking, you know, this is a really interesting and important story that, you know, there are plenty of law review articles out there. Um, and it's the case is covered in books, like every patent textbook today, of course, covers the case. But but it doesn't really explain what went down, you know, what was the behind the scenes story. And I, so I started to poke around as we do as academics, you know, this was one of 20 different projects that was kicking around in the back of my head. I started interviewing people. um, And, and the more I learned about this, especially on the government and the administration side, like it's the deeper that rabbit hole went. It's like, wow, this is crazy. Um, that all really happened. You know, there's this internal struggle between the patent office and the National Institutes of Health going on all behind the scenes in the administration. You've got really senior people in the administration. Larry Summers, the head of the National Economic Council, um, you know, Zeke Emanuel, the president's healthcare advisor, uh, all getting involved in this thing. And like, why? And how did that happen? So, it, it struck me, I, I really should write this up, not as another legal monograph or law review article, but but as a book that, you know, normal, ordinary people could understand, or even lawyers who aren't patent lawyers. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's the first time I had done this. The I, I became a little amateur investigative journalist, you know, as a result of this. And I kind of read about how to do this. I, I love books like this, uh, you know, all, all of the sort of Michael Lewis and uh, John Cario's book about uh, Theranos. I, 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 lo- I love those books and I read a lot of them. So I kind of had the idea how it should uh, be laid out. Um, and it was an amazing process. I, I really loved getting to meet some of the people who were involved here, uh, especially some of the patients and the advocates who are just so passionate about this. And, you know, 90% of the discussion about this case in the public was, was not about the patent law and the product of nature doctrine and learned hands case from 1912 and how it applies here. No one really cared about that to them and to most people. And I think to a lot of the judges, the case was about access to healthcare you know, the ability to know what our own genes have to tell us um, and some pretty fundamental issues beyond this pretty narrow point of patent law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the depth of the research really shines through in the book. I mean, you get a real feel for the for the people involved and, and what was taking place. So so kudos on, on that. Um, I mean, it, 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 in relation to what you just said, I mean, I... I when we teach this case in intellectual property or, or patent cases, I feel like it gets taught as kind of a milestone along the way in kind of general patent doctrine around Section 101 and patentable subject matter. What I couldn't help feeling while reading your book was that in a lot of ways, that kind of misses the whole point of what this case was really about in terms of how it was litigated and what it meant to the people who were involved in fighting over the outcome. What, if anything, do you think we should take away from this story 
in relation to thinking about patent policy, not just as a matter of kind of legal doctrine, but thinking about what we're trying to do with patent law in the first place. Yeah, and I, I, I think we can learn some lessons even beyond patent law, but just the law in general. Um, and that people should bother to know what's going on and how, I mean, obviously these days, you know, the law affects us all in big ways and, and small ways. And it's worth understanding or trying to get some understanding of this and, and getting involved, right? I mean, the thing that this case I think was really amazing showed that people who knew nothing about patent law, um, could could make a change, right? They they didn't know anything at first. They got educated, right? You can't just do this blindly. They got educated. They figured out what was going on. And despite the fact that the entire industry, the entire bar said, this is ridiculous. Like, don't even bother. Um, they said, no, we're, this is the right thing to do. You know, the, the, this makes no sense and we're going to do it. And, you know, it could very well have failed at multiple stages along this pathway, right? Uh, but it didn't. So people can change the law. And that, I think, is a wonderful thing about the common law system. You know, I the common law system takes a lot of flag and gets a lot of criticism, but it does allow through individual cases and individual people's grievances it allows pretty monumental changes in the law to uh, to happen. Hmm. So one thing that struck me reading the story as you told it was it really seemed like a lot of people from inside the kind of patent law community looked at the subject matter of this case and said, this is a really easy question of patent law. There's nothing to talk about here. And it took people from outside to say, hey, wait a minute. This is really bad policy with really bad consequences, not just for breast cancer patients, but for patients across the board. And it's really bad for science policy writ large. And it took those people to kind of step in and say, hey, this policy has has to change. But was kind of horrifying about it to me was how contingent it felt. Like nothing said that this had to happen or that this this really kind of obviously kind of poorly conceived policy would would end like what should that tell us like what should what should we take away from that in terms of thinking about policy making in not just the patent context maybe but other contexts as well yeah um like life life is full of chance right randomness and chance play a large role in in everything that happens in in life, and I really came to appreciate that there are many places along this road that uh, this this may never have happened. The um, you know, I mean, things just popped out. Angelina Jolie, right? Like, uh, came out publicly, like as the Supreme Court was considering this case with this New York Times op-ed about how she had these BRCA mutations and. But not everyone could afford the surgery that she could afford. You've got, you know, the the law clerk for the district court judge in New York, um, who just like, has a very odd, rare chance had a PhD in molecular virology, actually had a patent himself, and really understood what was going on. If this case had been dismissed at the district court level, it never in a million years would have gotten to the Supreme Court, right? Um, there's so many of these odd little coincidences and contingencies that 
that that made this happen. And and again, that that is a, a function of our common law system that the, the the law moves based on individual cases. And and there was legislation being proposed, you know, in 2007, various people, including President Obama, then Senator Obama himself had proposed genomic related uh, legislation, but but that didn't. None of that legislation went anywhere, right? Um, changing law through Congress is a very different activity, and you need strong, well-funded backers um, for that. Litigation, you don't, and you know you can take that flyer, that one in a million chance, and bring your case, and um, you know if you've got right on your side, you know, hope for the best. So, George, in in closing. I wonder what you think the the legacy of the Myriad case is, not, not only in relation to kind of gene therapy technology, but also in relation to kind of how the legal system and the patent system think more broadly about innovation policy, how we ought to do it, and what we ought to be thinking about when we think about the development of patent law. Yeah. So certainly a lot of the opposition to the ACLU's case was, oh, this sky is going to fall. Innovation is going to be dead in America. And, you know, no one's going to bother to, uh, you know, do anything unless we have these really strong patent rights. And and that proved not to be true. Um, that wasn't true in the BRCA case from the very beginning. And if you look at the early story, there were a dozen groups around the world uh, who were racing to find the BRCA genes. Someone would have found it pretty soon after Myriad was first. They had the most money. They had Eli Lilly backing them. They had some advantages. But a couple of months from then, somebody else would have found it. For BRCA2, they they beat a team in the UK by literally one day, one day <laughs> Um, they, uh, they, they filed their patent applications, um, before this other team. So innovation still would have happened. And, you know, this BRCA was an unusual case, but even with these, even with this law since 2013, it's been nine years now, we still have plenty of innovation in the diagnostic space. Um, you know, when COVID-19 came out, there were many companies who jumped in, were able to create diagnostic kits, um, pretty quickly. And so, you know, we have to be very careful about these sky is falling arguments. It, it's not going to happen. The parade of horribles that gets trotted out um, every time there's some potential weakening in the intellectual property system doesn't necessarily come true. Um, we still have a very robust innovation system. There's plenty of room to get patents. Um, on actual inventions and not just discoveries of uh, things that are already occurring in nature. Great. Well, George, thanks so much for coming on the show. I was really glad. I'm really glad I had you on again, and I really enjoyed talking about your your excellent book. No, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Friday, go and settle back in your rockers because it's time for another story. This time, Uncle Jazzbo is going to lay a little history on you cats. I'm going to tell you how the airplane came about. 
Well, way back in 1903, B.D., before Dizzy, two brothers cut out from Woody and were doing a bicycle act in Dayton, Ohio. They were billed as Wilbur and Orville Wright, and in bicycle circles, these cats were considered mighty big wheels. In other words, a couple of real hubcaps. Then one early bright, the two brothers took off. They decided to fall by the Corn Exchange Bank to exchange some. On the way, they were pedaling a groovy four-beat when Orville said, Dig me, Will. No hands. And Orville took off at a wild tempo down the asphalt. Then, pressing his luck, he tried to make a turn. But the poor little two-wheeler hadn't been turned on in weeks, and it flipped. Orville tried to fake his way through, but when one of the tires blew a clinker, he did a one-and-a-half with a full twist. And uh, she wasn't bad at that. Climbing out from the spokes, he spake. Man, these bicycles are the lowest. I'm hip, said Wilbur, but I can't see walking either. That heel and toe action is nowhere. You're so right, said Orville. But uh, what other way is there to go any place? At that moment, right on cue, a wild goose flew by overhead. Taking a gander at the goose, Wilbur said, Man, what a crazy way to get around. Why don't we do something like that? Orville picked up on the idea immediately, and the two brothers came on like Edison, started inventing like the coolest in their machine shop. Well, after three weeks, they'd finished the gig, and there in the center of the room was the result. It had feathers, it looked like a giant wild goose, and it sounded a little like Frankie Lane. But uh, after repeated tests, the brothers discovered that they had goof because it wouldn't fly. The very best they could get from it were uh, a couple eggs now and then. Well, for the second experiment, Orville came up with a weirdo. They borrowed a crazy cap with a propeller on it from a passing boy, and Orville cleverly installed a motor in the hat to turn the propeller. To test his brainchild, he tried to add on Wilbur for size and started the engine. And quickly, Wilbur's head rose into the air. But uh, as his feet were still on the ground, this proved to be quite a drag, so experiment two was put in the get lost file. Well, it was the third try that made the history books for Wilbur and Orville. They decided to make it to Kitty Hawk because they heard the breeze there was the most. They were hoping that maybe the breeze would hit the wings and move the ship and bring the moolah back to them. So Orville wheeled out their wild contraption and Wilbur juiced up the tank. But after a few tries, that gizmo wouldn't get off the ground. So they poured some more juice and they tried and they made with the juice again and they tried again, but nothing. But finally, Orville, trying the hardest, putt-putted down the field once more, and Wilbur yelled at him, Hey, Dad, how about some more juice? And then from Orville came the now immortal words. He said, Save it, man. I'm flying. And flying he was, chums. Flying he was. Flying he was.